Hello, my friends. Welcome back to the Naked Leadership Podcast. This is Chad. Please forgive my terrible sounding voice. I feel great now, but my voice just sounds horrific. My apologies. I'm joined once again this week by Dan and Adrian, and we get the opportunity to sit down with Paul Hansen. Paul Hansen is the president of Epcon Franchising, a network of independent builders across the United States. We get a chance to dive into Paul's principles of leadership and how he leads both his corporate team and the franchisees in his organization. I can't wait for you to hear this conversation. Let's dive in. So, Paul Hansen, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity. It's so great to have you. Thank you for your generosity. And I, I, right here at the top of the conversation, I just want to give you a couple seconds and an opportunity to introduce yourself. Yeah, well, I've been in the construction home building industry now for about 18 years and really got into it by accident. I, I went to school uh, with an accounting degree and wanted to focus on that, but graduated in 2003 at a time when the accounting industry was just imploding. Uh, that was the Enron scandal era. And you had a situation where entry-level jobs were being interviewed by uh, or for by former partners at firms like Arthur Anderson. So just wasn't an opportunity for me to get into public accounting. And just so happened that one of the national builders recruited pretty heavily out of the small school that I went to. And they pitched me on an interesting idea to come be a home building entrepreneur, as they put it, a project manager for them, and really like the idea of the freedom that they at least told me that was going to provide. And it ultimately did. Um, but I took it as a temporary thing. I thought, well, I'll just do this for a couple of years, wait for the accounting industry to recover, get my CPA, and then go back to where I'm comfortable. But really fell in love with the business, fell in love with the personal interaction that I had with customers and building 50 to 60 homes per year and impacting those lives in such a positive way just was really addictive and eventually grew out of that role into a purchasing position, did that for a few years, um, did some sales along the way too. Then when that company expanded into Florida in the, the depths of the recession, I went down there, took a leap of faith and saw some opportunity to go there. I went into more of a leadership role there over a construction team. Then in 2015, I was approached by uh, a home building franchise. And even at that point, having been in home building for 12 years, I had never heard of the fact that there was a home building franchise. So that was very interesting to me. And they talked to me about how they help small builders grow. And that really resonated with me. Um, so I did that for a few years. And then three years ago was recruited by my current company, which is also a home building franchise. And had the opportunity to take over that entire side of their business. And they had really not focused on it too much since the, the Great Recession. They were just in survival mode for years and then really started to see an opportunity and wanted to bring somebody in with a fresh set of eyes. And that's been a tremendous opportunity because they've really invested in this business, invested in the team, invested in me, and we're seeing some tremendous growth and it's been exciting along the way. What a time to be in re residential building. Are you guys only residential or is it, is it commercial? I guess you're on the franchising side of stuff, but is it, are most of your franchises resident residential building? Yes. All of our franchise business is residential and 90% of it is for sale, not for rent. So we're dealing with customers along the way and 
That's great. I, I could feel like all everybody that listens to this or most people listen to this, I could feel like their ears perk up as soon as you mentioned franchising. That's one of the things, I mean, when we do these, uh, trainings that are called the impact series. That's one of the hottest topics that people are coming to the table with that have these brands and their leading teams. And they want to know what's in it for them in this franchise world. I'm curious for you, what, what you said you were drawn to it when, when, when the first company that you were with, you know, when you found out that they were a franchising company, what is it about that model that really attracted you? Well, the founder of that company, I loved how he explained it at the time. He said, uh, we provide big builder tools to small builders. And that's really the entire concept. And, and we do a similar thing here, just in a different way at Epcon. So the idea of being able to work with business owners and get involved in all that they're doing, the decisions that they're making, leading them, teaching them from what I learned with a, a large machine of a national builder, uh, is just really exciting to me. I love that perspective. I mean, that's really the, the opportunity of a franchise, right? Is to like go to the market with all the tools that the big boys are playing with or the big, the big people, the big boys and girls. Right. Going out there with something proven instead of doing it on your own. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. That's great. Well, I love this. Um, we got some information about some of the things that you're passionate about. And I want to go and I want to dive into some of those as far as leadership goes, as this is the Naked Leadership Podcast. And obviously you've done well for yourself in the leadership position. And I know that there's so much that we can uncover and, and dig into that you could bring light and, and knowledge and wisdom to the conversation. I love this idea that you've talked about uh, the, the relationship between risk and building confidence. And um, most of the work that I do in the coaching space is with small business owners who are men. And one of the hottest topics that we're constantly um, ping-ponging and going back forth on is confidence. And, um, and it seems to be such a crucial ingredient for leadership. And I'm wondering, why is, why is this, it, just at the top, why is risk and confidence something that you're passionate about talking about? Well, I've seen the effect of it in my life. And, and my personal opinion is that you build confidence by taking risks and learning about yourself as you either succeed or fail. And I, I believe that anybody can learn to be risk tolerant and start to take on those traits just by starting with small things in the very beginning. Take risks that really don't, at the end of the day, aren't really risks because if, if something goes wrong, you're not in a catastrophe or anything, but start taking those, those small steps, build up to larger ones. And then uh, my experience has been that you're going to gain confidence as you see yourself pull through those risks and start to have a proper relationship with your fears that, that come along the way with taking risks. Yeah. You know, that's, that's interesting. I, it's such a perspective game, right? It, it, it um, how do you maintain your perspective as the stakes go up? on the risk, right? So it's great to start with smaller stakes so you can get a sense of how am I relating to this? How do I, what are the conversations that get me to, you know, that turn my amygdala on and all of a sudden I'm reacting and then I miss the opportunity. And how can I stay in the risk in a way that I can find the possibilities without freaking out, right? So you want to build that tolerance, almost like um, taking, you know, in the old, I, I read stories about back in the, you know, 1300s, 
people would take small bits of arsenic so that they could build up a resistance to it. So somebody poisoned them, they don't go down. Right? It's that principle. So. Yeah, and I remember I had an employee when I was in Florida that was pretty risk averse and asked me one time, how do you get to the point where you can be confident and take some risks like that? I said, well, we'll just start with things that really have no consequences to them. Go up to a stranger and start up a conversation. And worst case scenario, they blow you off or tell you to go away and <laughs> you're, you're never going to see them again. So who cares? But you've, you've identified in that moment, you feel something, that's, that's your fear, identify it. And then you know what the feeling is next time when it comes up again. And then you can go to your wife and take a shot. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's, it's, um, I love this. I think it's um, such an apropos thing. I think people want, people are dying for confidence. But what I hear you saying, um, Paul, is that, you know, confidence is a product. It's not a precursor. Meaning like, the, the, the bumper sticker for what I mean, it's like, Courage begets confidence. Yes. We want confidence, but the only way, the only gate to get that is, is the courage conversation. Like what risk am I willing to take on? Whether it be small, talking to a stranger, asking for what you want, negotiating with a loved one, you know, having a tough conversation. For you, stranger. Jeez. He turned my phone on. Siri talking to us, you know, Um, whatever you said, turned her on. She likes me. Hey, Um, but you know, but I I like that. I mean, most people like want confidence and we, we wish we had it. And it's, and you know, my experience is most people, I think confidence typically is like a look backward. Like, okay. Like I've done in the past, I've um, there's some kind of proven something or I know this about me, and that can promote some sense of confidence. Um, but man, that's a risky bet. Because I, I say there's like no, there's no guarantee that the past and the future are even connected at all. Like I could have been good in the past and then I, it, I'm gonna really, you know, fail in the future. Um, but, you know, courage, courage is like a forward, is, is a forward, is, a, is fueled from the future. Like what matters most to me and if I'm really connected to that, that I'm willing to take a lot more steps than I would be if I was disconnected from that. You know, it's like, I think some people see this as like a psychological test of themselves instead of a meaningful notion. Like, you know, cause if I'm really connected to something, then courage is gonna, cause the willingness to take action, which will come up, will just show up like a fear and show up like a risk. Um, but it's just this, it's, it's an asymmetry. It's worth it to me. So therefore I'm going to be courageous on the back end of being courageous. I'm going to look back and say, Oh, look at me. I just did something I've never done before. And that'll feel like confidence. Anyway, I just dig, this is a, I think a lot of the pain in people's lives, a lot of the pain in the leadership's lives is, is really found in this conversation. So I appreciate you bringing it up, man. I'll share where it started for me. I remember it very well. Uh, I went on a very transformative trip when I was 15 with my youth group. It was a bunch of guys. We went to Arizona for a conference along the way. We went to the Grand Canyon in Sedona. And I remember going to one place in Sedona where there was a cliff. You could jump off into the river and it's about 30 feet high or so. I I went back to it recently just to verify that I was accurate on that, that it's not a product of my youthful eyes, but really was a pretty big cliff. And I can remember we, we climb up to it. 
And there was an older man at the top. And he said, when you get to that edge, you're going to start to feel something. That's, that's your fear. That's your brain trying to protect you, but it's going to be okay. Just fight it, overcome it, recognize it and do it anyway. And I jumped off that cliff probably five or six, seven times. And then I remember the next time I was hiking in Zion or someplace like that. Okay. There's that feeling again, I can push through this and you start to build confidence as you're overcoming it and having that proper relationship, knowing your fear is there to protect you, but it's, it's on overdrive most of the time because we're really not in dangerous situations like we're evolutionary trained to be. Yeah. So true. What a powerful experience. I'm, I'm curious, Paul, for you, it's really easy for everybody else out there to look at Paul and go, okay, all right, Paul, you're in a, you're in a successful company in a successful position. You've figured this thing out. And so you've got it made, you no longer have to like face this thing, which is we call risk and confidence. And I'm curious, just like, does it continue to show up for you uh, even today? And how does it show up for you? And what's your relationship to it? Like, how do you continue to work? I'm going to guess that there's still things that come up for you that feel like risk. And that this is a practice that that's, I'm just guessing that based off of my lived experience, how does this still show up for you? Sure. It absolutely does. And right now we have over 80 franchisees across the country. They all have different needs. So they'll come to me and propose things that they feel that we should be working on. Once I identify some things that are important, then there is always that, that sense of fear. Okay. Is this the right decision? Are we going to go about this in the right way? But it's, it's really a matter of, again, recognizing that feeling, validating it to an extent. Okay, this is a little bit risky. We, we could go down a wrong path here. Um, but ultimately, just, I, I don't want to say suppressing it, but managing it to the point that if, if it's something that makes sense and we've thought through it and really taken the time to identify a good solution, then we're ready to move forward on it. How do you evaluate if the risks we're taking? Oh, that's a hard one. I'll be honest. Um, I rely on a good team because I'll tell you something else about me that I am impatient and often want to move to a solution quicker than I should. And so I think that's where you need to have people that compensate for shortcomings like that and can really help you make a good decision and work through some of the details that as somebody with a strong bias towards action and wanting to get things done and experiment repeatedly, uh, it's really invaluable to have someone like that to rely on to go through the pros and cons and help you make the right decision instead of failing, repeating, failing, repeating. Yeah, I was going to ask, Paul, do you remember when you took the Harrison assessment where you were in the risk profile versus analyzing pitfalls? I was high on risk and low on analyzing. Yeah. Most entrepreneurs, I mean, a lot of people we work with are like that. And for listeners that don't know what we're talking about, um, so we utilize this thing called the Harrison assessment. Um, and you, if you've listened to, we, we did a whole series on this domain, this like, opportunity management, they call it now, but this risk conversation, like balancing risk, or I guess honoring, honoring risk and honoring this conversation around how, you know, uh, what might, uh, what might get in the way. And most entrepreneurs we work with, founders or you know, top CEOs, high willingness to take business risk. Um, and some of them have like similar to you where it's like low preference for 
uh, or maybe even honor of um, the uh, potential pitfalls because because of a lot of other machinery that's at play. Like, you know, you're hyper optimistic. You, it's going to work out. I've got a really great team. I know how to bounce back so I can take a higher risk and I can move forward and even, you know, come what may. It's okay. Like there's like a stand and a commitment, you know, despite um, what other people might, it might, you know, their relationship to risk, you, you know, you've got a great relationship to risk. Like you're up for it because of the potential upsides. And I, I just dig, you know, you could have spent your time, you know, trying to be less risky to make other people comfortable. Or you could spend your time that way, or you could also do what it sounds like you're doing. And I just want to put a pin in this conversation because I think this is where a lot of strain comes in and leaders is hiring around you to get, get some skeptical people around you that can also be the devil's advocate, if they will, and point out what you might not be seeing. Not that that conversation is going to run the show either. And not that yours of, Hey, we're going to take the risk either way, but you know, generating the right conversation where, where uh, contrary viewpoints can get to the table so it can be a really educated risk. So we're not like surprised later. Um, we actually know what might come up and we've actually gamed it already and like no big deal. So it was like prepared for, prepared for challenge um, is usually what's needed. I just, I dig that. And a lot of people will complain about their team instead of utilizing um, the, what, what's usually analyzing pitfalls is related to wisdom you know, examining cause and effect is part of wisdom. So I, I dig what you're up to, man. And one of the biggest benefits of experience is knowing what you suck at, if you're willing to admit it. Right on. And so I know that I'm low on that scale, the, the analyzing scale. And my team will even tease me that they, they don't think I'm going to read something unless it's in bullet point form because I'm that impatient. So I've taken the steps to make sure that I have some pretty detailed people working in this office to How help compensate that. It's interesting too because the one of the compensating strategies for that is being collaborative, right? Because I check in with the other other thinkers on my team, other people who have strengths where I might be weak, and that's how I can check what I'm what my risk is. I, I want the risk. Uh, I get a little impatient about analyzing the pitfall, and I get collaborative. So a lot of times, executives who are are low on analyzing pitfalls are longer on collaborative collaboration. Adrian, you picked up when I asked that question, Paul, um, and you answered, you, you kind of brushed past it, but just like having a great team around you, that's what I picked up on too. Like, it was so clear to me, like, oh yes, that is, uh, and, and uh, this idea of for those who are listening, the leaders that are listening, I'm, I'm wondering, do you find more confidence when you think about the people that you have surrounded yourself with, or do you find less? And if you find less confidence, that's, that's a good indication of where you're at as a leader. So I'm, I'm going to take a leap, Paul, and say, like, it tells me something about your leadership that you have that level of confidence in your, in your team, that they're going to show up for you when you're making these decisions and evaluating the risk. And I'm curious how, what intentional things have you done in order to make sure you have a team that surrounds you that you're able to choose that confidence in them? My approach there is actually sometimes a little frustrating to them in the beginning. Um, we're going to hire somebody, we're going to equip them, train them, set expectations, make sure that they're clear on their role, their mission. And I'm not going to then really 
lead them at a, at a micro level. And I'm not even talking about micromanaging, but I'm going to allow people to fail so they can learn and grow. And ultimately what, what I find is they will begin to lead themselves if, if you're clear on the expectations and the mission. And you're also going to find out pretty quickly when you have the wrong person in that position, because if somebody's failing repeatedly, not learning, not growing, then you have a different problem. But what we typically find is people will step up, take ownership of their position. I mean, that's really the key. Do they, do they own their role, their position and what they're doing? And are they committed to the mission? And the only way to find that out is to really leave them to their own devices and get them to lead themselves. Is there a way that you invite them into that conversation? I mean, like you say, it's frustrating for them right at first. How do you set that up for them? Because I can see, I, I mean, I was even on a call just today with one of my clients who small team, he's a chiropractor, best in his area, um, and making some discoveries about where he solves problems for his team. And that's something that he's working to get away from. He really wants to bring problem solvers to his team rather than be the parent of, of the situation and, and jump in whenever his people are need, you know, whenever there's a problem arising and being that person that does it, how do you set that conversation up for them? How do you, how do you start to um, relate to them in that way? Is it, I won't, I won't take a guess. Just I'll, I'll let the, I'll let the question hang. Well, I haven't always been good at explaining it up front. So I think that's where the frustration comes in. Sometimes the way that I explain it now is it's okay to fall at times here. I don't like to use the term fail, but it's okay to fall and to learn. And that's how you're really going to grow in your role. And again, learn to take ownership of it, really see yourself as you're setting the tone, you're setting your own agenda. And here's the mission, here's the, the goals and the expectations. And it's not always going to go well the first time but you're going to learn pretty quick what it takes to succeed here. Yeah. yeah in your industry, you're going to learn quicker. You're not going to be in. <laughs> you know what I mean? But I, I've, I, I wonder when you interview, because uh, I've had a, the opportunity to work with you a bit and you're pretty conscientious in my experience and uh, aware of what's going on around you. I noticed you listen really well. And I'm wondering what you listen for when you talk to a franchisee. I know you're committed to their success what are some of the things you listen for that, you know, tell you that this person probably has the chops, you know, the character, not just the money and the, and the you know, the, the net worth, but they have the skill and character to do, you know, to be successful. One of the best things I learned at that big builder that I was with in the past, all the, all the job interview questions there were related to tell me a time that you did this. Or tell me about a situation in which you did this. It was all very past performance indicates future performance based. And it, it's similar when we're interviewing either associates here or when we're talking to potential builders, we wanna know how they've handled exact situations in the past, what they've done, what their experiences have been in business. And we find if you've been successful doing something similar in the past and, and you're motivated, you're gonna be successful doing what we do. Yeah, I, as I was impressed, you had a couple of people who had never been in the, the building industry and had made a leap and been successful. So it's like, I, one of the things I, I got the impression of is that 
you're listening. Have you walked through a life, you know, have you been up against dying, you know, kind of in business and walked it out? And if you have, you're probably got the stuff to, to get this done. You know, it's like you, you have that uh, near death experience, which means you know, it's interesting because if you're a lot, if you've been near death a few times, you're a lot less reactive as you get close again. Right? You're more thoughtful about it. But I was impressed with a couple of guys I met there that had come from an outside industry and had been successful. So I was, you know, I was wondering what you were listening for. So I appreciate that. Well, it sounds like, I mean, you've got such an aim at learning, um, which, you know, usually in, in the human performance perspective, you know, it can really generate uh, a whole lot of, I'll use the word again, a generative perspective. Because, you know, if, if learning comes via action, just a little bit of what I've heard you say that's, I think, really impactful, is that learning via, you know, via action versus learning via, you know, even studying best practices or studying, you know, um, other people. Like, you know, how much have you been willing to take it on and try something out? And have this kind of learning model where it's like, oh, yeah, you're, the, the aim is to go out there and do something and then see if it works or not. And like be in this ever growing conversation about yourself and to not take on, oh, it didn't work. So something's wrong with me. No, it didn't work because let me get clear about why it didn't work. Let's do some forensics here and see how I can shift myself and get up and go again and try something new. Because it's like it's almost like learning via resilience. Um, instead of learning via fill in the blank how other people like to learn, which is a collection of information maybe or of insights or or something else. But it's like personal resilience, it sounds like, is is uh, the, maybe the road in which people get the type of learning you're talking about, um, which is a huge invitation. I mean, rarely do I ever hear somebody say, oh, I hire them and just tell them what the outcomes are. And then it's up to you to figure out exactly how to get it done. And I'm going to let you lift, be left to your own devices, as you say. And then, you know, you're, you're managing outcomes and you're leading and you're coaching the person as they manage, you know, as they head towards outcomes. Instead of the micromanagement piece or the I'm going to give them a plan and just pay them to do something. You're actually you're actually investing in them to become someone that actually overcomes challenges. That's distinct, man. Yeah, I think to where I was about five years ago at a different organization, we were aware of a number of problems that we had, but the discussions were always, here's the 10 reasons why we can't do this or shouldn't do this. And it'll never work here. The culture is okay. We have this problem. Here's our first best option. Let's give it a try. And there's been a number of examples over the last three years where it hasn't worked out, but Hey, we learned one way not to do this. <laughs> so <laughs> let's move on to the second one. <laughs> and maybe by the third one, we'll actually have something that works and that's going to provide value to our system. Yeah. Well, that's one thing I wanted to point out that's clear to me, or, or at least how I perceive kind of the philosophy you're putting out, Paul, is that you've built in room to fall, which is very interesting. A lot of, a lot of leadership, a lot of leaders want to pretend that everything should be hit on the first, on the first try and operate as if that's going to happen. Now I get that there's like a sense of optimism to that. That's great. But also how do you, I don't know, is my perception right? Have you, do you expect to have some falls 
here and there and, and build it into the system. It feels like Adrian, what you, when you, what you were saying to me, it's like character building more than filling a position, which is really beautiful. I'm wondering just how do you look at like, do you build in that space for, I know you don't like the word failure and I don't either, but to fall. I definitely do. And I, I think I've learned some of the, the biggest things, whether it's as a project manager, building homes to being in purchasing or doing what I do now by falling at times. I don't think that I learn a whole lot from when I have a big success out there, but I certainly learn a lot. I, I analyze myself a lot closer than I typically would when something doesn't go the way that I initially expected it to. And it stays with you. It's something that you, you don't forget. Yeah, I have family in your business and it takes character to, to succeed in, in, the, in the business that you're in. And, and the rewards are great. You know, it's one of those deals where if you put the price, you pay the price, it's, it, it has big rewards. But there's a distinction I'm I would love to hear from you between being positive and being optimistic. What's the difference? You, because I hear there's a difference in there for you. <laughs> In my opinion, the difference between the two is optimism is I'm going to set out and do this and have a positive result of some kind, a good result of some kind. Being just positive is, is the types of people that I've worked for at times in my past as having managers where head in the sand, everything's going to be okay. It's not a big deal that things aren't going well. We're going to muddle through it. Um, but optimism is I'm going to be intentional set out with a plan and have a good result. It may not be the exact result that we want, but it's going to be a good result. And if it's not the exact result we want, we're going to learn from it and move forward. Yeah. There's a, so it's part of the distinction I hear is positive is more like blindly optimistic. Like I'm not paying attention to what the potential downsides are. And, and I'm not, like optimism is the belief that the future is going to turn out well. So I believe that I can stay in this and I'm going to learn from it enough that I'm going to eventually, this future is going to happen. This something, you know, I'm going to come out with a positive outcome if I stay with it, if I learn from it. But if I stay blindly optimistic, I'm going to repeat the same pattern over and over again. And pretty soon I'm going to, you know, I'm going to burn out basically. Yeah. One of our team's core values is that we are responsible for, our own results. And that's really what optimism is to me, that we're going to set out and do this, this, and this, and we're going to have a good result and we're going to own it. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to hear your, what do you think the connection might be? Cause I, I get the distinction and um, I've got a client who's who deals with a partner and uh, she calls her toxic. She, she says she has toxic positivity. Um, which is, which is, which leads me to this question is like, what, what connection do you see between your view of optimism and how you engage it and how trust, like what's the relationship between trust and this type of optimism? In terms of trusting your employees? Well, if, if you stand the way you're saying, right, like you've got this clarity, like we're committed to this future. We think it's really going to work out and we're going to integrate uh, any kind of pitfalls along the way, we're going to integrate them. We're going to bring them in. We're going to learn from them. Any falls that we had, we're going to get up and analyze and then, you know, take that as an asset to us in the future. So, you know, you know, we're headed, we're headed up the mountain. We've got a plan in place, but there's like lots of routes here. 
And, uh, and so you as a leader like that, how do you think, yeah, how do you think it affects your team in the context of trust, of trust of you or trust of a plant? Well, we're all trusting each other to move in the same direction. They're yeah. trusting me to be clear on what that direction is, what the mission is. Yeah. And I'm trusting them to take ownership of their roles and execute on what we've all agreed to. So yeah. in, in your scenario where we're climbing a mountain, we've got maybe we're all taking different paths to get to the same destination. Uh, so we're going to trust each other. We're going to go about and, and go about it in the same way and bring our best selves to the battle. Yeah. Yeah. That, that just hits me. It, it seems like trust. I mean, if people know what you're up to both externally and internally, right. Cause you've got a growth trajectory, both externally for the company and you guys are doing extremely well. And internally like you're also in a committed evolutionary state i would say as a leader then people know where to locate you and like the bad news isn't bad news in that context because if we're like committed to inter i mean it just seems like people are going to bring you the bad news sooner where most people if like if there's a leader to flip the other side if there's a leader that's committed to everything being positive all the time and which requires a high level of denial you know, because you can't, you can't stay positive because suffering is happening in life all the time. Things don't work. People are jerks, blah, blah, blah. Long list of things that aren't perfect. But if you're committed to seeing it as positive, it means you've got to have your head in the sand, as you were talking about earlier. Um, it seems like people are going to bring you challenges earlier. Have you seen that? Yes. And I always tell them, all of you are aware of the problems before I am. And you probably already have the solutions identified. Yep. So part of your responsibility is to make sure that we as a company get it right. And it's not about being right. It's about getting it right in the end. Mm -hmm. That's really great. That's so I, I had something planned, fun, something fun planned for the end of this conversation. You guys have already gone there. So thanks for ruining it. No, well, I'm just kidding. I do that all the time. <laughs> they call me the, the chief ruining officer. That's what I'm <laughs> Well, You're the I CRO, got the CRO. I'm the CRO. I'm the chief ruining officer. Yeah, CRO. I got this really fun list from Rita, uh, who is, I don't know her relationship or, or her position in the company, but she sent me so much great information on Paul in preparation for this conversation. And I got this fun list that's titled Paul's Five Leadership Principles. And I was like, perfect. What I want to do is rapid fire these suckers and just get Paul's take on them. And, and maybe even just an experience or how you learn this or whatever. But if you're game, I'd love to just kind of throw these at you and hear your reaction to them. Let's go. And you guys have already a couple of them. Yep. You guys already covered two of them. So which ones do we cover? Well, we'll get there. We'll get there. Well, we, I was going to ask before we get into it, I was going to ask, are these Paul's or these Rita's version of Paul's? They're mine. They're yours. Okay, great. I was wondering if like these are things you talk about all the time, or if these are things that Rita's collected over the years. These are her yeah, hopefuls. <laughs> and they're not all things that I've created. Some of them I've just adapted from things other people have said, as as most smart people have done. Amen. Yeah, yeah. Right. Exactly. Feel so like the first one, the first one Paul just mentioned, which is we have uh, we have to care more about getting it right than being right. I, I've seen a lot of people just suffer from the inability to admit when they're wrong, and in business, if you're going to be successful, you have to be willing to be wrong at times. You have to be willing to say, okay, this isn't working. We went down this path. that wasn't the right path. Let's find a new path to go down. But there's so many people that just due to pride cannot do that. 
Yeah. Do you want us to comment, Chad? Sure. I didn't. I. I. I didn't fully think out the game, so we're That's making okay. up the rules as we go. Oh, it's, it's great. I mean, I'm just thinking about. Wait, 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 as long as we get it right. I'm trying to go back and ruin this thing, but, um, you know, there's a phrase we talk about all the time that, that I stole from somebody that stole from somebody else, probably that stole from somebody else, but it's this, um, it's this, uh, willingness to ask these two questions. And once, you know, you get through, you're having some kind of breakdown, like we got it wrong, quote unquote. So what now what? Right. So what? So I blew it. So what? I mean, I'm, to myself, I need to say that. Otherwise, I'm going to do what I, what you're talking about, like hide behind the facade. It's like, so what? I, of course, I blew it. I'm not perfect. Of course, I blew it. But like people that really build this house of cards based on their own image, it's just hard to get in there. But if you can get to that, like, so what? Okay, so yes, I blew it. And it's faster. We were just talking about this earlier, Dan, in a relational context. If I can like own how quickly I blew something and like get, then get wide open, so. Now what? Like, what are we going to do together? There's so much speed and versatility happen once I get over myself. Yeah, well, it, you, it actually, I think just human beings naturally want to dwell on the problem because of the, it smarts to fail. So I don't really want to get back in the race. So I might as well be right about what didn't work. At least I get the consolation prize, right? Yeah. At least I'm speaking more of a confession there than anything else. <laughs> All right. Number two, I, I didn't realize you also brushed on this one already, Paul make good decisions quickly instead of per perfect ones that take too long. Yeah. And I'll tell you that comes from being at a large organization with layers and layers of people to go through and just having meeting after meeting after meeting for something, because somebody had an objection at the corporate office or in finance and by the time we make a decision, it's too late. Yeah. That kind of connects back into the willingness to be wrong, to find out what, how to get it right. It's like, you know, oh no, somebody at the corporate office didn't like this. Now we got to make sure, you know, get the check off of everybody else. So we can see we get consensus, right? Take forever. All right. Number three work towards the culture you want instead of accepting the culture that you have. So I think th there's a lot of leaders that aren't intentional enough in uh, reacting to the culture that's going on or what, what's what the mood within the team is, what, what the state is, and then taking some kind of action to address that and change it quite frankly. And, um, I, I've been at companies or within groups where people just have the mentality, well, this, it is what it is. And I know how much you guys hate that term from our time in Arizona a couple of weeks ago. And I hate it too, because nothing has to be what it is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, resignation is such a, a, a prevalent human strategy to deal with existence. <laughs> it's like, ah, it is. What, I mean, that's what usually what I, what I, you know, it is what it is is typically is, there's nothing else we can do here. And I, uh, uh, you know, human. So I hear it such a different way. I always hear it is what it is. So I can get off of whatever I'm making it up to be like, what is it? <laughs> I can take, I have a t-shirt. So whatever I, I, I've been both ways on this, right? I have this t-shirt. Yeah. It is what it is. I want to put the caveat on the back, meaning it is 
what it is. <laughs> it's, it's like not not resignation wise, like the beginning. Like ah, this is what I've got. Right on. But it yeah. does most of the part. That's how I've heard it used too, Adrian. As more of a resignation, like up. Oh, it is what it is. Can't do anything about it. Yeah, that's a worthy thing to think about. Like if if that's placed at the end of a statement, uh, you know, it some might be versus a beginning of a, a new paragraph. Yeah, you know, it is what it is. Okay, great. How do we integrate? How do we now be? What? With, how do we be with what's here in a way that like this is this unideal fill in the blank? Okay, good. Can I start here? You know, so the, the culture is what it, I mean. The culture is what it is today. Now, to your point, Paul. Where do we want to make, where do we want to take this thing? Let's, let's, let's act like no moment in time is our enemy. If it's sideways right now, great. We start with sideways and we aim it this way. I love that. Yeah. And I was just giving you my quick reactions to each one, but the process for that starts with those conversations, as you were just saying, Adrian, okay, what do we want it to be? How do we get there? And then how do we just anchor it to who we are? Yeah. Yeah. Don't settle for what we're handed. Yeah, it's great. Um, number four, we already really dissected. Be optimistic, not just positive. It's about knowing the difference between the two. Um, Dan intuitively went there, and I love that. Number five, value people's skill, value people's skills as much as performance skills. I think this one's uh, typically a problem in big organizations, and it certainly was the big, massive organization that I was with in the past. Just overlooking the fact that somebody could be a total toxic a-hole, but you put up with them because they sell houses, build houses on Most time. a-holes are toxic. Yeah. <laughs> and a lot of people don't factor in. With, and, and when we would do our annual reviews at this large company, everything was performance-based. There was nothing about how you interacted with the team, what kind of person you were when you showed up every day. And I've made the commitment. I want to value the two almost equally that, not only are you going to be great at your job, but you're going to be somebody that we love being around and contributes in a great way to our time together. Yeah. I love that. You know, there's, I've been talking about this a lot the last few weeks is, you know, they used to bifurcate between like hard skills and soft skills. Um, you know, and then, you know, if you're running a business, okay, what are the hard skills? Are they competent? Do they know how to do the job? And they hire based on that. And then the soft skills, which is already patronizing and even the, or at least there's a bias, I would say most of the time between hard and soft. And so I'll get to the soft when there's time, or I'll get to, I'll be soft when the circumstances allow. And, you know, there's like competencies in both. And, and, you know, we end up talking, I think that's why we got along with your team so well, man, when we were in the room in Sedona or is that where we were? Scottsdale. When we were in Scottsdale, you know, we got along with the team because I could, I could sense this, um, this ethic where there's like these, what we call these vital competencies, which is like, how do you make, um, how do you make strategic decisions um, that the team wants to be a part of? And that comes back to how leaders presence themselves. And if it's connected to your point, connected to a vision, and it understands the interest in the room and incorporates those in, and how do we have the tough conversations or get the resistance in the room on the table so that you know, people feel like they're, they, can, they can disagree and still be involved, or they can you know, have a contrarian viewpoint and find a way to integrate that in. It's these vital competencies that you're, you're aiming at. Um, which is how do I get results through others instead of just being this 
team of rock stars that doesn't play well with that, you know, don't want anybody else in their sandbox. I mean, I, I get it, especially meeting your team. And we've talked about Rita. She's such a, a, a baller um, in that context, man. I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll brag about her for a second. I don't know if I felt so taken care of when coming in to an, to an event before, like so thorough and so thoughtful and all the details, which just leads to me that she cared about our experience. We're coming in as a vendor to help you guys. And uh, it made a difference for me. I felt like really embraced already, like part of the family. Yeah, she she exemplifies relationship is the business, right? I mean, that that's a Simon Sinek quote. But I, I had the same same feedback. She was so thorough the whole process. I'm very clear about making sure expectations were aligned and then exceeding expectations. And when we got there, and it was just well done. Mm-hmm. And that group, as you know, that that's our top core group of franchises. And she just has a tremendous commitment to make sure that that event is incredible to all of them and that all of you are taken care of. Yeah. Well, she, she did could it. help my golf game. That would work. <laughs> well, she did it. You know, even, even whenever we went over on lunch, remember we went over on lunch and there was like this call, this conference call. She even hand, like in, in some ways in that moment, we're like threatening her deal, right? There was a sponsor that was going to be the thing. And, and me and my not paying attention ran over. And even then it wasn't punitive at all. It was like, okay, Hey, so here's lunch. We're going to do lunch. And here's this conference call we're committed to. So let's, why don't we do it this way? And then we could do it that way. Like she just, you know, presence in the moment is like those commitments that can handle both execution and warmth and connection. Like that's, you know, maybe Rita's a, a, an anomaly in that way, but it's also a, um, she's absorbed this commitment from you, man. Testimony right there of your leadership, Paul, this has been really, really great. Yeah. Um, the, the opportunity to be able to sit down with somebody like you with the wisdom that you have, the experience and all of that kind of such as it's such a gift and that we get to bring that to other people. Um, I, I just, it's not lost on me. What kind of an opportunity is to sit down with you and pick your brain about what it means to lead people, um, and to cause results through them. So thank you so much again. Thank you. I, I love all that all of you are doing and Dan and Adrian, I mean, you had a, a tremendous impact on my life just in the short time that we had a couple of weeks ago in Arizona. Oh, your book was a real honor. Thank you, Paul. All right. Thanks, everybody. Well, my friends, thank you so much for listening to yet another conversation on the Naked Leadership Podcast. Your listenership and commitment to the podcast means the world to us. If this podcast or these conversations has helped or inspired you in any way, would you mind going to Apple Podcasts and leaving a five-star rating and a glowing review? This helps us grow the movement and reach more leaders and teams. Finally, the greatest compliment that you can give us is sharing the podcast with your teams and the other leaders in your life. Until next week, bye-bye everybody. Bye-bye.